Hey everyone, welcome back to Hell and High Water, part two of our special two-part episode with Mark Leibovich and Tim Miller, both authors of New York Times bestsellers of recent vintage just out in the last couple months. Tim's book, Why We Did It, Mark's book, Thank You for Your Servitude, both of them essentially about the Trump era through the eyes of people who enabled Donald Trump rather than Donald Trump himself. We spent part one of the podcast, which if you haven't heard it already, you got to go back, stop now, hit pause, go back, listen to part one. We talked about some news of the day. Mike Pence last week failing to really go after Donald Trump, even though Trump wanted to see him killed. Talking about Trump coddling the Saudis and casting doubt about whether we really know what happened on 9-11. A little bit about Merrick Garland. And then we dove into these two books and their sociocultural analysis of the culture of Republicanism in Washington. And that is where we're going to pick up the moment really in 2016 when it became clear that Donald Trump was going to be the Republican nominee. And at that moment, our friend Tim Miller made the turn from kind of standard brand Republican establishment operative on the rise, on the make, working for Jeb Bush, thinking he was on his way to the White House, to suddenly being one of the earliest conscripts in the Never Trump movement. Let's get into the second part of our talk with Mark Leibovich and Tim Miller here on Helen Water. Tim, I want to take you back to March of 2016. And in one of your first ever television appearances as a never Trumper, this is a little bit of you here on MSNBC. Oh, God, I know what this clip is going to be. Here's <laughs> Tim Miller talking to Chris Jansen on MSNBC. I mean, he made a lot of arguments about why Trump could be beaten and should be beaten. But here, here was one key element, which was there was no way Donald Trump could ever beat Hillary Clinton. No way. But here's here's how far he goes. Let's play that. We're going to talk about how he is completely unelectable in a general election against Hillary Clinton. And Hillary Clinton could get indicted by the FBI, go to jail. She would still win 48 out of 50 states against Donald Trump. He's getting crushed by her in all the polls. Trump loves talking about the polls. Uh, well, once he starts getting to the general election, you'll notice uh, his stump speech will have a lot less to do, to do with the polls. If Donald Trump is the nominee in November, who will you vote for? Who will Tim Miller vote for? Yes. I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not going to, I would never vote for Donald Trump. Uh, you know, I, I'm just a consultant to our principles pack. There are a lot of people who have come Hillary together. Hillary Clinton, ben Bernie lot, Sanders? No, of course I would not vote for Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. So I want to say a few things about that. First of all, Tim, you just made a big point about telling me how you were like, I'm was the PR guy for Jeb Bush. I was a political pro. I, the political pro who, who's- I said pro. You said you were a country lawyer. That's yes, a simple country lawyer. I don't really understand how, even if you were trying to make a point, you would make the claim that Hillary would win 48 out of 50 states, especially after getting indicted by the FBI and going to jail, number one. Number two, if that were true, the idea that you wouldn't vote for her in those circumstances, even though you thought Donald Trump was a menace, seems a little strange. And and then, of course, it is also the case that you did end up voting for Hillary Clinton. So, yeah, this um, is some good oppo, Heilman. I'm impressed with you as an old oppo practitioner. Uh, Joe, pa- uh, so Joe Pounder I- and Matt Rhodes have been supplying me with all this information. So. I believe that. So uh, so there's two. There's a two-part answer to that question. One, man, I've gotten better on TV since then. <laughs> yeah. Boy, I was oh, shitty. Well, um, that's the other thing. Is you were, you seem surprised. Like You seem taken aback when she asked you who you would vote for. You're like, who? Uh, Tim t- t- Miller? Hamana, hamana, yeah. hamana, hamana. Yeah, I'd have to look at my face on that. Uh, you know, I was a young country lawyer then. So I'll say this. There are two things happening. One, I did end up voting for Hillary Clinton, and I did say that publicly once it was a general election. I believe you said that it was from March. So the primary is still on, right? And so, again, this is not to excuse myself, but like the reason why I was doing that is because the point was still trying to convince Republican voters to vote for 
Ted Cruz or Marco or whoever was left at that point. And so being a spokesperson to say that you're a Hillary Clinton stooge was not going to be the best thing. So anyway, that was the explanation for why I did that. But in retrospect, and this also then happens throughout 2016, which is a huge mistake, which was not me. I ended up coming around on this, but almost all of the never Trumpers. Well, end up voting for like Evan McMullen and that's whole theory of the case and this is I think based on the flawed assumption which was real by the way this was our real mistake you're trying to pick on me for a strategic move of trying to do a bank shot in a primary but our real mistake was seriously misunderestimating him to use a technical term right that was our real mistake and because I think that had we really thought now, we being the good ones, right? Now, another important factor about that little pack I was speaking for, all those assholes except for me ended up supporting Donald Trump in the general election. So those guys weren't going to vote for Hillary. But the remaining never Trumpers, I think we had made a tactical mistake in assuming he was going to lose. And that is what brings out the David French broomlet, the right. Evan McMullen broomlet, right. rather than just being like, fuck it, we just have to suck it up and vote for Hillary. And that did end up being a tactical mistake, even though that's where I landed. So, so I want to be clear. The reason I actually played the clip, other than just to kind of have a little bit of fun with you is that that is the case, right? Pretty much everybody in the Republican Party didn't go to that extreme of claiming she could win if she was indicted and put in jail and that she'd win 40 out of 50. But I would say almost everybody that Mark, among your sources, how many Republicans do you think once he won the nomination in professional politics who thought Donald Trump could beat Hillary Clinton? Not a lot. Although, you know, there were people who were in Trump's bubble who, even like reporters, people who do not, yeah. who were not working for him, who said, this just feels different. Right. Are these like streets full of people? Are they being counted here? Right. Because this just feels different. So, you know, you, you did sort of have to pay attention to that after a while. I think that's obviously true. There were people who did get it. But I would say the people in Tim's world, the people who worked, yeah. who worked for Ted Cruz, who worked for Marco Rubio, who worked for Chris Christie, who worked for John Kasich, who worked for any of those other people, people who were like in that class and certainly in the lobbyist class in D.C., that's how they wanted to stop Trump. If they wanted to stop Trump, they wanted to stop him, not because they actually cared about Trump being a threat to the country, they wanted to stop Trump because they were almost certain he would lose to Hillary Clinton. Right. Although I do want to say, this is actually a pet peeve of mine. So, you know, Chris Jansen asks Tim, Tim is a Republican operative living, did you live in California then? D.C. Okay. So you lived in D.C. So Hillary's going to carry D.C. So Tim Miller's vote doesn't really matter one way or the other. I mean, obviously it does, but you you get it. But everyone has this I did vote for her, though. I've said that three times now. I just want to make sure that now, 10 years from now, when Heilman uses this clip to get back at me for something, I just want it to be clear. I I said it before you said it, so I gave you that credit on my own. Hillary, I'm sure, thanks you for your support. I will say, though, that (laughs) it does bother me when everyone always does the cutesy thing, like Susan Collins says, oh, I wrote in Paul Ryan. They only write in Paul Ryan or Jeb Bush. and I mean, nothing against Paul Ryan or Jeb Bush, but I hate it. One of the very few Republicans who actually says that they will not vote for Donald Trump and they will vote for basically Biden. I mean, I don't think she actually used the word Biden, but Liz Cheney said, I will do everything I can to make sure he never gets near the White House again, which is actually a strong statement coming from a Republican. Well, it should be a pet peeve because the truth is, if you believe that the man is an existential threat to American democracy. Yeah, don't you're you're pissing your vote away by voting for somebody Absolutely. else. All you're doing is helping Trump by voting for someone who's not the Democratic alternative. And so you're yes. actually undermining the seriousness of your own critique. And it sounds so stupid when Brad Raffensperger is being interviewed on MSNBC yeah. after saying this person is terrible and awful. I mean, you know, Rusty, what's his name? Bowers from yes. Arizona did the same thing, although I think he kind of 180'd on this a little bit. But, you know, you sound like an idiot. You've gone out, you've testified. If you're really going to vote for him after this, explain yourself. Can I just really quick bring this back to the book for one second? Oh, please. Because this please. is interesting. I was interviewing all these people. Yep. 
and I asked them all, like, so how did you end up voting in 2016? And I had some of these consultant types who said that they voted for Trump because they thought he was going to lose and they just wanted to have a right. clean Republican resume. Like right, they yeah. were like, don't tell my wife or whatever. You know, I literally had that on, on back. And then Alyssa Farah, who I interviewed in yes. one of the chapters, yeah. she does the thing Lebo just made fun of. She votes for Paul Ryan, doesn't tell anybody. She's going to vote with her dad, who's a huge Trump person who votes for Trump, Joe Farah. is like a conspiracist. She then writes in Paul Ryan, doesn't tell anybody. But all the incentives for all these people are like, like, well, we assume he's going to lose. Right. So we're just going to keep going along and doing the same old shit that we ever did back in the This Town Day. I mean, Alyssa's telling me, she's like, I think he's a madman. He's an insane person. But I'm still working for Jim Jordan or whoever she was working for at the time. Mark Meadows putting out press releases talking about how Hillary should be in jail. And then I'm going to write in Paul Ryan. And this was this slow corruption of everybody. In 2016, the first step of the corruption was, I assume he's not going to win. So I can just go along with it because this is all a big game. And then he wins and it's like, Ooh, well, now he's in there. So they need a person like me to get in there to help him, right? This was the baby steps into the pool right. for how people who hated him went along with him. And you saw just like a hint of it in me there. So let's dive deep into these books right now. They are, as I said before, really telling the same story from two different sides of the looking glass. They're really about Donald Trump's enablers, his accomplices, good Germans who refused to do anything to stop Trump's rise. And then in many cases, not only didn't try to stop it, but willingly, happily, eagerly, gleefully participated in it. So I think that you guys both go pretty deep on the psychology, the various motives that people have and how they got sucked into this world and trying to lay it all out. And as we were talking about this town before, in a lot of ways, Mark, it's kind of like all things that we've seen in Washington before, but now like on steroids and speed kind of simultaneously, right? So it's a distorted, but it's a distorted kind of cartoonish version of tendencies and inclinations that we'd seen before and weaknesses that we've seen before in Washington. And I think the place though that that changes is when we get to the thing about stakes again, because many people can say, for a lot of us, you know, watching Trump disregard norms, laws, make a mockery of, of the presidency, be obviously unfit for office for four years. Those are all things that raise the stakes. But then, you know, it's like I think we all would agree what happened on January 6th is of a different order of magnitude. And yet, and yet, right, the fact that there's still what we've seen happen since then, and you guys both, you know, grapple with this in, the, in, your, in your books in slightly different ways, that none of it broke the spell for almost anyone, that they're all still there. That's like an order of magnitude different as a moral problem, as a political problem, as a spiritual problem, whatever. So I'd like you to just try to take your th kind of theory of the case of what it was that made Trump able to do what he did that, that is at the heart of the enabling impulse and how that it can be that powerful that it has survived even a clear, unequivocal demonstration of the fact that the man was trying to stage a coup in America. Mark, how does your theory explain that of the, like of the totality of the book? How would you explain it to a Martian who came down and said, okay, thank you for writing this book, but just boil it down to me so I don't have to read it. I'll just start. I mean, I would say, first of all, it's just weakness. I mean, it doesn't have to be this way. I mean, Kevin McCarthy doesn't have to be Kevin McCarthy. Lindsey Graham doesn't have to be Lindsey Graham. They could do something. They absolutely could do something. I've said this before. I mean, so much more chilling than what happened on January 6th is what's happened since then. Right. That is so chilling. And, and think about what we have in front of us. It's not just that, like, he had a bad day on January 6th. It's all of 2024 that is in front of us. If he wins, take one kind of corrupt thing he does. Take, like, pardons, all right? You know, anyone can do whatever they want. 
basically. His cabinet, his Justice Department, he basically spent the... I'm sorry, this is going to sound like off point, but he spent the last like two, three, four weeks of his administration just going down pardon lists. I mean, they were all donors. They were all family members. They were all friends. Sure. None of them were actually at the Capitol, by the way. I mean, that, you know, you need, you need connections to have a pardon, right? I mean, right. You know, let, let them get rounded up. But I don't know. I mean, it's all right in front of us still. I mean, crystal clear. And again, I, I and this might be naive, but I, I think Republicans have to stop him. They get the first crack at him. And, you know, put him in a general election against Joe Biden. It's sort of a jump ball at this point. So, Tim, here's where I want to go with you. Basically, you play two roles, really, in this book. One is kind of as a sociologist and a reporter, and you're talking to people like you. Another is as a kind of memoirist, and you're really talking about yourself. And and we'll get to some of the reporting you did, the, the friends of yours you went back and interviewed about how they went from being what you thought of as your kind of people to being Trumpists. But I want to focus right now just on you. One of the great virtues of the book is your willingness to be honest and candid and reveal some things about yourself and your own kind of weakness and flirtation with the dark side. I had no idea about some of the things in the book, including the work that you did after spending a lot of 2016 talking about the dangers of Trump becoming president. Almost immediately at the beginning of 2017, you fall prey to the impulses that would lead a lot of people to become Trump enablers. You start working on behalf of Scott Pruitt to become the head of the EPA. I had no idea that, that even took place. I somehow missed that memo. So I really want you to hear, just to hear you talk about that and about when you went through this self-examination and confronted your own motivations and your own slippery slope slide into enablerism. What did you learn about it that helps illuminate the actions of others? Well, I thought those were equally important parts to why I wanted to write the book. Yeah. The first part was atonement and self-assessment. And then the second part was understanding, which is the core to your question. And I was like, well, I can't understand why these guys did it unless I really examine my own brain. Solipsism, you can only know your own brain for sure. And so it's like, why did I work for homophobes? We talked about that already. How did I justify that? Well, I compartmentalized it. I just put it in a little box over here. I rationalized it. I told myself these stories that were comforting, which is, oh, well, the Democrats aren't perfect on this either. I just need to do this to advance one more job, et cetera. The Scott Pruitt thing. How did I rationalize that? It was like, I'm a political hack. That's my career. I'm a mid-level, <laughs> upper mid maybe, if you want to be nice, political comms person. What am I going to do if not for this? I'm depressed. My career is in shambles right now. None of these people are going to hire me. I've been on TV sounding like an idiot, as you pointed out, uh, as you played earlier, right? I've been trashing this guy. He's the president now. What am I going to do? One of his cabinet guys knew me because we've worked from this thing together. He's like, I need help doing PR. We'll just keep it under the table, you know? Okay, I get, you know, inertia, right? Inertia is the title of that chapter. Like, that is the explanation. And I think that there are the gradients of rationalization. Obviously, inertia doesn't take you all the way to becoming the Secretary of State or whatever, right? But there are a lot of mid-level people in Washington for whom inertia was the answer. They were Republicans. They went to Republican bars. They had Republican careers. They had college funds to pay for that were paid for by Republican campaigns. Maybe some of their kids were named Reagan. You know, they named their dog Jack Kemp. Like, you know, like you're in this culture. Yeah. And so, you know, for a lot of them, when I asked them to explain it to them, it was similar to that justification I gave for working for Scott Pruitt, which was, what the fuck else am I supposed to do? I'm just going to do this. Yeah. So that's not a defense so much as, you know, kind of a comment on the banality of evil element to this. Right. I, I don't think it really quite gets to your January 6th question, yeah. but it certainly gets to how people got to the brink of January 6th. Right. And, yeah. and, and Mark, you know, you say this thing at the end of the book, you talk about 
you know, about the kind of about the future, but it's all in the context that we've gone through January 6th now. These are a little bit of the, of the, of the very dulcet literary tones of Mark Leibovich here, where you say, um, Trump remains overwhelmingly the master arsonist of this enduring and burn it all down worldview and approach. But the main reason Trump will remain in control of the GOP is that the same dynamic that has kept him atop the GOP heap for this long, Republicans quaking before him, humoring him and fetishizing him has remained unchanged. And you end the book by saying the following, which I found chilling. A guy who's a very funny writer, this like it was not the way I wanted to, I wanted I was hoping for a joke at the end. But here was what we get. A former Republican congressman told me recently that the party's only real plan for dealing with Trump in 2024 involved a darkly divine intervention. Quote, we're just waiting for him to die, he said. That was it. That was the plan. He was 100% serious. Uh, and you, you know, say, well, yeah, it looks like he's going to run again and you know, I don't think he's going to die anytime soon. So, um, I mean... That assessment is a very dark assessment of where we're headed right now. It, it is because it's it's just passive, right? It's like someone else will take care of this problem, which has been the MO for the Republican Party for seven years. It's like, we're bystanders here. We just wait, you know, and um, we have no agency. And it's depressing. I mean, I, I will say that Adam Kinzinger said this to me. I, I remember towards the, I think it's, I think this is in the book, but he was saying, you know, you walk around these office buildings, these congressional office buildings, and a lot of these sort of Republican staffers will, will walk up to me and, you know, they'll say, great job. I wish I worked for someone like you. And they can't obviously do this publicly because they actually might work for Jim Jordan or Paul Gosar, actually. I mean, some real out there members of Congress. And uh, but they need the job again. So on one hand, what Tim was just talking about is they need the job. But on the other hand, they're just waiting around. Right. <laughs> they just, you know, we'll just, you know, hopefully the stakes won't be that high by the time it comes for us to pick a horse next time. I mean, it's really depressing. I, I wish I could be more uplifting. Yeah, I wish you could be more uplifting too, Mark, but you know that I feel the same way. Anyway, we got to take a quick break here and pay some bills. And when we finish with that, we'll be back with more of Lebo and Miller on Helen I Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. We have been talking about your guys' two books, The Excellent, Why We Did It by Tim Miller, and The Fantastic, Thank You for Your Servitude by Mark Leibovich. And there basically is, we've said, about what happened to Republicans with Donald Trump as president and the implications of that going forward. Tim, you have a whole taxonomy of enablers, which we'll get to in a second. But you know, when I think about the kind of nay plus ultra enablers, the people who are most famous for having been fierce relentless, unyielding Trump critics who, as soon as he got in office, turned into Trump toadies, slavishly devoted to him, would do anything for him, sucked up to him to the point where you worried a little bit about whether they were going to have some kind of lung failure because they were sucking so hard on the Donald Trump tit. If you think about people like that, more than Kevin McCarthy, more than even Matt Gates, more than anybody, the person that we all think about and the person who people have the most questions about is... South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. No one criticized him as forcefully and no one has sucked up harder to him after he became president and to this day. So I want to play a little flip-flop sound of Lindsey Graham. People have seen these various supercuts that have been done. This is a very good one done by the Washington Post. It was done in 2018. You will hear throughout it, pretty obviously, places where there's Lindsey before from the campaign criticizing Trump and Lindsey after 
once Trump becomes president and he couldn't find any point to ever say anything critical about his new boyfriend. So let's play that tape and we'll talk about Lindsey Graham on the other side. You know how you make America great again? Tell Donald Trump to go to hell. Donald Trump is the most unelectable Republican I've seen in my lifetime. He's not fit to be president of the United States. The Republican Party has been kind here, bringing out the worst in us. Disparaged women, opportunistic, religious bigotry, race baiting, xenophobia. He's a jackass. No, I don't think he's a xenophobic, race baiting, religious bigot as president. You don't have to run for president and be the world's biggest jackass. I think he's a kook. I think he's crazy. You know, what concerns me about the American press is this endless, endless attempt to label the guy as some kind of kook, uh, not fit to be president. I don't believe he's a Republican. His policies are really bad for the country. I'm going to try to help our president, Donald Trump, be as successful as possible because, uh, number one, I agree with him mostly. I like the president. I want to help him. I hope he's successful. Trump's foreign policy is a complete disaster. I think this strike was a game changer. There's a new sheriff in town. What President Trump has done is historic, deserves the Nobel Peace Prize, and then some. That's just like a minute of that clip, one minute of that clip, which goes a little bit before and after. I think if you're listening to it, you can tell which ones were the ones when Lindsay was a candidate versus when Trump becomes president. And and so I turn the, the ball over to, to you. I have a little handoff just to you, Mark, because you read a lot about Lindsay. You know Lindsay well, and you spend a fair amount of time in the book like trying to, because it's a... It is one of the most asked questions in the, about Washington among Washingtonians and others. Like, what the fuck happened to Lindsey Graham and what explains this? You have a, a pretty elaborate uh, discussion of it in the book. I want to just hear you lay out your theory of the case. You spent a lot of time with the guy. Yeah. I mean, first of all, Lindsey, uh, you know, his holy grail is relevance, right? I mean, that's the word he uses over and over again. What does relevance mean? I mean, at least to me, it sounds like kind of a passive word. Like, okay, you, you are here, you are relevant, right? Lindsay gets incredible spiritual sustenance from being in the U.S. Senate. Okay, so, like, you know, full stop, right? I mean, one of his colleagues, you know, a sort of centrist Democrat, one of his colleagues said, you know, there is no one in this body who needs this job who needs the U.S. Senate more than Lindsey Graham does. And, yeah, obviously without Donald Trump supporting you and having your back in South Carolina, you're probably not going to be elected to the U.S. Senate in South Carolina. He also just loves, to use Lindsey's term, being at the dice table. The dice table is being in the room, being, as Tim put it, in the mix, right? Uh, being you know, on the golf course with Donald Trump. I mean, that's one, it's politically very helpful to him. But it's also, look, the guy's a thrill seeker. He is a political thrill seeker. John McCain, also a thrill seeker. You know, he could sort of hang around with John McCain, with Donald Trump, and you're going to be in the frame. And to Lindsey Graham, I mean, that is a drug. It is a hell of a drug. He actually talked about it in some time, it, at some point in the language of addiction. He said, you know, being at the dice table is an addiction. There's an energy around it, and I need that. So, you know, in his own words, I mean, that's sort of where, where he's coming from. But yeah, I mean, it's quite a thing to sort of listen to him talking, you know, over the years. So Tim, there's a Lindsey Graham, first of all, the taxonomy, I'm not going to ask you to explain all of these, but they're good names. Okay. Messiahs and junior messiahs, demonizers, LOL, nothing matters, Republicans, tribalist trolls, strivers, little mixes. That's the category that, that Lindsey falls into. Peter Principal Disprovers, Nerd Revengers, the Inner Team Players, the Compartmentalizers, and the Cartel Cashers. Some of those are pretty suggestive of what they mean. Some are, you need to read the book, which is a good reason why you should buy this book, Why We Did It by Tim Miller. Explain the little mixes category. Mark just alluded to it a second and, and how you categorize Lindsey. And also, 
there's a great story of Lindsay showing up, basically getting shit faced with you uh, and 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 Jeb Bush at one point, and kind of like yeah. starting the, the beginning of his of his most anti-Trump period of like you know trying to fly around the country and mobilize people to stop him in the early part of 2016, which is a good story to tell. Yeah, and for the little mix category, just first, I use Reince as the main character, my old boss, Reince Priebus, and and Lindsay is as a as kind of almost a this is boy Reince is going to hurt Reince's feelings even more more of an upscale example of this than Reince <laughs> since uh, he's even more in the mix than Reince is, but um, it's just to the drug that Mark talks about. I say it in the book that like every striver city has these sort of drugs, right? In Hollywood, it's this fame and addiction to fame, and in New York, it's money, and in DC, like people say it's power. And for some people, it's power, but really, it's more like access to power. It's down market from power. People like being in the room where it happens, the old Hamilton Ugh. thing. They like being around. Fame. They like being <laughs> in the golf cart with Trump. It. I know you're all, we're cringing, right? Ugh. But this is D.C. And people like to go home and talk about, you know, how they're in the green room and who they talk. This is why this town like landed. Right. And so you get addicted to this. Right. Like I need to be in the mix. I need to feel important. And that's Lindsay. And that like explains his turn. I think the story is so late in the campaign. Lindsay comes to try to give Jeb a jolt. He had dropped out. We were already on our death march. And Lindsay endorsed Jeb because uh, I, I do think at that point it was genuine. He think, he thought Jeb would have been the best candidate. Maybe that was mistaken thinking, but I, I think he genuinely believed that. And so we'd keep him around all the time for like a month because he's, he's – say what you want about Lindsay. He's a hoot. Right. And so when you're on a losing campaign, you're driving around New Hampshire. Like I I once had Eric Cantor in the car with us for one hour and I called down to the headquarters and I'm like, get Eric Cantor the fuck out of this car. Right. Like he's just a dour, like keep down, you know, uh, uh, talking, being negative. That's not Lindsay. Like Lindsay's making jokes about midgets. You know, Lindsay's like keeping it light, keeping it loose in the car. Okay. So anyway, so Lindsay's around a lot for like the last month. And one of these nights, we're in New York, we're doing TV interviews. And we go back to the hotel, and and Lindsay and Jeb are just on one. Like they're Jeb's drinking scotch, Lindsay's drinking Chardonnay. I'm like they're out there outpacing me by quite a bit because I had to like get you know write a press release or something in the morning. And Lindsay just won't go to bed. Like he keeps me up all night. Jeb sneaks out when he goes to the bathroom. Lin- Lindsay keeps me up all night talking about how Trump's a bigot. He's a racist. We gotta stomp him. He's gonna ruin the country. He's gonna ruin the- all that shit you heard. I, he said even worse stuff about Trump to me. And then he'd call me then for like weeks every night just talking about what are we going to do to stop Trump? How can we kneecap him? How can we fuck him up? He's horrible. He's a racist. He's a bigot. So this was not performative, right? It, like Lindsay is a performer. So you could see how maybe he was saying that during the primary because it was some sort of political performance. That wasn't true. Like the cameras were far off. He was two about bottles of Chardonnay in the bag. And like this was his genuine view of Donald Trump right. that he that he flipped on because he liked being in the mix that bad. Right. And I think that's, I mean, I don't no, I don't mean to be too like, you know, earnest about this, Lebo, but like I get, I mean, look, I'm, you know, I'm not naive. Uh, I get the, uh, all the intoxicating qualities of proximity sure. to power and all that stuff and how much that's a, a commodity in Washington. And it's always has been, it's true in other worlds too, but it's amazing to me because I actually, I think that what Tim, that story was not to me. I didn't find that story at all uncredible, which is to say, I think that what Lindsay is, is not like someone who doesn't believe anything. I think he actually believed all the stuff he said about Trump. And then in the end, it was like, okay, if it's either totally abandoned my actual beliefs and be able to have that buzz, that intoxication, that proximity to power, or stick with my beliefs and be locked out of four years with Donald Trump. He's like, fuck that. I don't care about my beliefs. I need, I need the, I need the proximity more than I need uh, any conviction. That's, that seems pretty. That seems like a, about as powerful an indictment as you can make against a human being. I mean, don't also don't underestimate the power of fear of boredom. 
Yeah. I mean, when you grow up in like tiny town yeah. South Carolina, right. Central North Carolina or South Carolina, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a kind of a quiet life. Just really quick in Mark's book, the thing from Mark's book that was the saddest thing for me about the whole any of any of my interviews or anything yeah. was was this quote from Lindsay about how him and John McCain used to get on their high horse too much. <laughs> I thought that was the most revealing thing in that, like, in some ways he did change, right? In some ways he made a tactical move to be to stay in the mix, but in other ways it seemed like he had convinced himself that like that. The good stuff he used to do, like being on the high horse was when they were doing good stuff and they're advocating for, we care about this issue so much right. that we are going to get on our high horse and advocate for whatever it was. You know, immigrant, some, maybe sometimes in, in foreign policy, it wasn't great stuff, but it was, you know, usually I care about climate. You know, we need to be nicer to immigrants like that. So he had come to believe that that actually was bad, that when him and McCain got, you know, got too, too earnest, too genuine. Like that was a really depressing, revealing quote from Mark's book for me because yeah. it was like, man, e either it was bad or it was a burden. Like it's just it's a, a real pain in the ass to be on a high horse, right? It's just it's kind of liberating to be off the high horse in some ways. Yeah. You know? So Tim, this question about how all of this persisted even after the insurrection, you know, that at the time when you thought maybe they had various rationalizations for sticking with Trump for a long time, but after this, of course they'll turn on him, and then they didn't. You have one story, I think, that speaks to this in the most vivid way imaginable. In a lot of ways, Lindsey Graham is one of the most exquisitely drawn characters in Lebo's book. And I would say like the most memorable character, aside from yourself, in your book is this friend of yours named Caroline, who you introduced at the beginning of the book in the prologue, I think. And then you don't get to her until the end of the book, where you really spend two chapters on her. In fact, on a drunken interview you did with her, <laughs> trying to get to the bottom. This woman who was a a really genuine, close, personal friend of yours, worked with you on Huntsman, was not the kind of person you thought would ever work for Trump, did. And what, and, and not even just work for Trump, but like became fully enmeshed in Trump world and was still enmeshed in Trump world after January 6th. And you go and try to like grapple with her. She's not a composite character, but she's, she's kind of emblematic of the larger thing. <laughs> Yeah. Again, it's two chapters. It's, it's she contains all of the rationalizations of all the other characters exactly. in one human. Isn't, isn't right. that that's exactly yeah. right? Don't you think? And and so what? Yeah. What's your as you? I mean, you write about this in the book, having spent hours with her, having a lot of drinks, getting like you know, as they say, getting naked. But I don't mean that literally. With her about her feelings about all of this, it gets heavy and emotional. What's your takeaway? Like, we like you're gonna, again describe it for a Martian who's kind of like this is yeah. she's the culminating thing of the book. Yeah. Because it's like, how does this, her name's on the, on the permit for the January 6th rally. She's not just there and she helps to organize right. it. Um, and, you know, kind of just sees herself as one part of this big ecosystem. Still, after all this time, she's just like, I see myself as one little mid-level person as part of this game. You know, the mid-level oil man, like, you know, twisting the lug nut before the spill. Right. And. And, and that may, and, and I thought, uh, you know, when there's deaths, right, when, when their own Trump his own voters are dying and going to jail over this, that's how I tried to break through to her and so try to say, you realize that, like, you were, it's not your fault, really, but you're complicit in this. Like, you were enabling this, and it's Donald Trump's fault, and, and people need to stand up to him, and people died because of this. Like, his own supporters died. And, and, and it was then when I got, I felt like I got the closest to breaking her. 
and and I just you know I was I was doing the uh, goodwill hunting you know like <laughs> it's okay it's not your fault thing trying to trying that strategy and it just didn't work I just couldn't break her in the end like we got a little teary but I just couldn't break her and and what it comes down to for me is is true is true of her and it's true of I write more comedically about Chris Christie you know who is a good example of this who literally almost got killed by Donald Trump yeah I mean to speak in life or death like Donald Trump I mean kind of uh, reckless homicide I don't know what you'd call it but uh, you know he knew he had COVID he. Gave Gave it to Chris Christie, who has some comorbidities, I'm pretty sure. Uh, didn't tell Chris Christie that that he had COVID when he was in a close closed in space with him. Christie almost dies. Trump calls him and doesn't and just asks him if he's going to blame it on him. Then Christie goes back out and campaigns for him again. I, so how does this happen? Like in the face of these deaths on the mall and Chris Christie almost dying. And like the answer that I come to is just that all of these selfish rationalizations, like these stories that we tell ourselves are just like much stronger than I realized. Right. right? Uh, like you get it for people who are sociopaths who are just like, I just want power for, you know, uh, and that's all I care about. But all these other Again, I'll just use the word banal things like the hatred of the left, the desire to be in the mix, the desire to feel important. All of that stuff ended up being much more powerful than I realized. And um, and, and I think that, you know, what it really came down to is on the 6th is that all of the rationalizations that got them up to that terrible moment, like were still operative when the sun came up the next day. Right. right? Like some people had died. But if you had justified going along with Trump because you need the money or because you love being in the mix or because you just hate the left and the woke scolds so much, like you still hate the left and the woke scolds and you still want to be in the mix and you still want money the next morning. Right. Like just because somebody died doesn't change that. That was my that's how I'd explain it to aliens. Doesn't make you feel good about human nature, but like that that was my observation. All right, we're going to take one more quick ad break and then we'll be right back for the final part of the second part of our two-part special interview with Mark Leibovich and Tim Miller here on Hell and I Water. Welcome back to Hell and I Water. So, guys, I don't see much on television that cheers me up, you know, when it comes to Republicans or gives me, God forbid, a sense of hope about the state of the nation, the future of the country, the future of the party vis-a-vis the GOP. But last week I did. There was a, a little piece of a viral video that a lot of people commented around that at least, I mean, at least it cheered me up. And maybe I, in my most optimistic moment, I'm kind of thinking if people start to see this kind of behavior, which is like breaking from lockstep, conformist, omerta, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil about other Republicans in the age of Trump. Maybe if they start to see this, that this is an effective communication strategy, this kind of barbed, critical, plain-spoken, truth-telling, and just brutal, brutal power of what you're about to listen to here, maybe that'll start to change things a little bit. So the context here is Mike Pence. We talked about this already. He gave this speech. We criticized it at the top of part one of the podcast. This may be the only place in which the three of us share some common ground with one of the great Trump enablers of all time. That would be Matt Gates, who also decided that Mike Pence didn't do a very good job in that speech the other day. And so Matt Gates unloaded on Mike Pence. And when he did on CNN that night with Aaron Burnett was former Vice President Pence's former chief of staff, Mark Short. And he was able to respond to Matt Gates. So let's listen to that. You'll first hear Matt Gates talking about Mike Pence, and then you'll hear Mark Short talking about Matt Gates. Our America is proudly ultra MAGA, not some low energy roadside rhino safari. On that note, 
Let me just say what everybody here knows. Mike Pence will never be president. <laughs> nice guy, not a leader. Mark? Well, I don't know if Mike Pence will run for president in 2024, but I don't think Matt Gates will have an impact on that. In fact, I'd be surprised if he was still voting. It's more likely he'll be in prison for child sex trafficking by 2024. And I'm actually surprised that Florida law enforcement still allows him to speak to teenage conferences like that. So I'm not too worried about Matt Gates. Thanks. 911, 911, I'd like to report a homicide. You know, Mark Short just like did something we've never seen from Mark Short before, I, in my knowledge. Uh, yeah. Just like, just turned around with a, with a switchblade and plunged it right in the middle of, of, of Matt Gaetz's forehead on national television. And now the reason that gives me hope should be obvious, you know, which is like, that's the kind of thing we never heard anybody from within the tent do for not just four years, but really five and a half years, all of from 2017 to that night. Like we haven't heard very much of that, but when people leave the tent, they do that. But Mark Short's still in the tent, right? He's like still like close to Mike Pence and Pence is very much trying to like understand, try to run for president with Donald Trump's votes. It at least maybe like some of the ice is cracking a little bit or am I, am I delusional, uh, Lebo? Well, I don't know if you're delusional, but I, you know, Matt Gates is an easy target. It'd be one thing to say about Matt Gates. I mean, if Trump himself were sort of taken down 10 notches by a Mark Short in that moment, it would be a lot more satisfying. And, and I'm always amazed, and, and we've all talked about this, at, at how little ammunition is actually hurled at Trump. Because right. you, can, you can take him down so many ways now. I mean, he's such a loser. He's done so badly for the Republican Party. You know, they, they lost so many offices. But yeah, maybe people are, are like sort of not afraid to speak up more. But again, I mean, they, they do sort of leave the big target, un, right. you know, unattacked. So, Tim, I know I know that I because I think I heard you say this on TV last week, you know, that your view was if only people just kind of what Lebo just said, which is like if only people would take that same kind of that they take that same uh, switchblade out and plunge it into, into Trump's forehead, metaphorically, uh, that would be a real sign of progress. I guess my question is, isn't that, I mean, well, I don't want to, I don't want to ever be naive about anything. So I'm not trying to say like the whole world has just changed because Mark Short made this one comment about Matt Gates, but is that not kind of pr providing an instruction manual for what is going to be necessary if some people in the party who are, you know, former MAGA people want to try to stop Donald Trump? It's kind of like, this is what it needs to look like, guys. Yeah, rain cloud alert. I, I'm not there okay. for you, John. I'm happy that you are hopeful, but um, I don't know. I, just going back to my armchair psychology of the book is like Mark Short's rationalizations have changed yeah. since January 6th, right. right? I mean, like, Matt, whatever. I don't know. Mark Short didn't interview him, so I don't know if he's a little mix or what he is, but you know, like, whatever were the rationalizations that got him to being a chief of staff for Donald Trump's vice president you know, are not operative anymore because Mike Pence has been cut out. Right. And so he, I, I don't, you know, he does have a little bit of freedom. Tactically speaking, I loved seeing that. Um, but, you know, it, when, when does that get turned towards Trump? It's just, it's hard to kind of imagine what that looks like. Right. And I, and I, I don't know. And it's kind of a known unknown, right. Which is, you know, that to beat Donald Trump, you're going to have to kill him. Right. But does, does Ron DeSantis, have the skills to kill him 
I don't, you know, maybe we don't know. Like, is it possible that Ron DeSantis goes out and starts haymakering Trump, and all of a sudden he looks like a never Trump? Uh, you know, I, I just it's it, that all that is TBD. Um, but uh, yeah, sure, Colin Colin Maga's pedophiles is, I guess, a step in the right direction well, from Mark Short. I'll take that, it, I guess, may, over the alternative. Maybe I didn't Progress. actually. Maybe I didn't actually. Maybe I actually didn't actually see his house for hope, and I just found it amusing. Maybe that's really what it's coming down. I'm trying to. <laughs> it was a great up. line. I have one last piece of sound to play, just directly to your point, uh, Tim, which is uh, I do want to like just very quickly have you guys answer the question about 2024 and what you think of this potential uh, conflict between Trump and, and DeSantis. And here was Ron DeSantis, who um, uh, last week, as you you alluded to, Tim, uh, one of the most aggressively homophobic anti-trans uh, politicians, probably the most aggressively uh, homophobic anti-trans uh, politician in America right now, certainly of any consequence, the governor of Florida. Uh, he went out last week. Uh, he does something every week that has clear presidential uh, motivations, aspirations, and intent. And last week, Florida basically said they were going to reject the federal guidelines on gender identity instruction. Uh, and, and he was asked about it at a press conference. This is what he said. This will be for elementary school kids where they're instructed to tell them, well, you may have been born a boy. That may have been what you said, but maybe you're really a girl. That's wrong. That has no place in school. So that is happening in our country. Anyone that tells you it's not happening is lying to you. So I think what we did in Florida was very important to lay down a marker to make sure that that's not something that, that gained a foothold here in the state of Florida. And that again, our kids are able to be kids. So Tim, I'll throw this to you. You asked the question, now you can answer it. You know, a lot of people say Ron DeSantis is the smarter Trump. Does he have, do you think as on the basis of what you've seen and all of your, your years as both a hatchet wielding Republican operative and as a, an anti-Trump commentator um, and a, now a memoirist, um, when you watch Ron DeSantis, do you think uh, that guy could take on Trump head to head or do you think Trump would just roll right the fuck over him? I think it's TBD under the big lights, man, under the Klieg lights, or whether he's got it. I think that he's he is good at one thing that Trump is good at, which is using the conservative media uh, to his to his personal brand advantage. And and DeSantis has that down. Like you're saying, like every week, it's, there's almost two Ron DeSantis's. There's like one that appeals to Jeb down there in Florida that's like actually doing real legislating, yeah. which is another different from Trump. He does actual legislating. Yep. And then there's like Fox Ron DeSantis, which is almost not a whole different person, but, but another side of his personality. He's good at that. He's good at waging culture war stuff. Okay, what happens the first time Donald Trump, you know, calls him Tubby Ron? You know, and like, uh, I, I, okay, like, what has, has Donald then? Trump ever made I, fun of somebody for being fat? I think he, I think it's like the one yeah. thing Trump hasn't gone to so far. I don't, it's, I don't it's know. Okay, so whatever. We'll have to come up with something better. I'm not good at the nicknames, yeah. but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, what happens that when that starts? I don't know. And, 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 you know, he was at that TPUSA thing, which I suffered through, and he got some cheers, the uh, Attorney Point USA conference um, this weekend, but he's not Trump. Right. Like if, uh, on the performance side of things on the stage, you know, so I and, and I also once you become and once you decide you're going to run against Trump, you become anti-Trump. Yeah. Right. So then how does that affect his brand? Right. I think that's also TBD. Right. Uh, you're not going to be able to do the Ted Cruz thing, which is like, I love Mr. Trump so much, but I just, you know, it might be time for him to move on. Like that's not going to work. So. Uh, I think there's a lot of unknown, but I, I think that he's skilled uh, for sure. And if Trump disappeared, and had a heart attack or whatever, like he would um, certainly be the favorite by a wide margin. Do you, like a, a George W. Bush to 99 level favorite, not like a yes. Jeb 2016 yeah. I, favorite. I, yeah. I wholly agree with that. Uh, Mark, I, you look like just looking at your at your at your body language and facial expressions that you think like. 
um, if you put those two up head to head, that Trump would would crush DeSantis. I, I completely think so. Yeah. I mean, I think I think Trump would absolutely destroy him. I think Trump makes absolute sport of people who are not comfortable in their own skin, people who are not entertaining, people who um, are Ron DeSantis like, <laughs> to be perfectly yeah. blunt. I mean, it, it's just um, and, and also, look, I mean, from a personal standpoint, people who know Ron DeSantis I mean, he doesn't, he's not a lovable guy um, no. I don't know, Trump just strikes me as a really, really bad matchup for Ron DeSantis, but you know So I asked you guys in the, in, in the lightning round here Trump runs Trump runs again or not, Mark? Sure, why not? Tim? Yes, of course. Yes. What, what else would he do? So, and you yeah. both think if he runs, he wins? Nomination, definitely. Yeah, the nomination, that's what I meant. The I don't think definitely. I, I, I call it 70-30. There's a lot of unknowns out there, but people could end up getting sick of them. Like, you never know. I just, I, Ron DeSantis could be better than we think. I, I just think 70-30, you know, maybe 80-20. Uh, he's a clear favorite, but not... I wouldn't say a hundred zero. Do you think? Uh, do you think Pranson Josh Hawley has a national future? Uh, racing through the Capitol in his uh, with that with that lovely uh, dance. Have step you seen the picture of Josh Hawley in the really tight shirt, getting the wine yeah. off the top top rack? And somebody t- that goes around the web. Oh, Josh Hawley. This this is not working. Yeah, okay. The Josh Hawley <laughs> man of the people thing is not. Working. I'm glad you. I'm glad you think that. Um, uh, Mark, you think Biden runs again or no? Oh man. Um... Yeah, I think he probably will. I, I kind of think he probably shouldn't, but you know, I don't. I don't. He didn't ask me, Timmy. I'm worried he's going to because I think he just seems stubborn, and and I think if Trump runs, he feels like he's the only guy that could beat him. Um, which I don't know if that's true, but I think that's what he would think, and he'd have good reason to think it based on what happened. So, I, I but I don't know that he'd get a clear clear primary i think that there's a chance someone from outside the beltway would say we need I, we need to have a real primary it is, maybe that's naive but i don't it know it has been amusing watching uh gavin Newsom get into a, a fight with ron DeSantis from california um which right, is yeah, kind, of, kind of incredible uh, yeah. um if i don't think it, gavin has the balls to go after it, biden neither. in a primary it'd have to be someone outside of an yeah. establishment and if biden doesn't run mark who do you think if the, the democratic favorite is there's only one right answer to this and if you get it wrong i'm gonna be very disappointed um, okay, so I assume you're not talking about Kamala. Um, I would say I'll save you from uh, yourself. John, I was, I am, John, John I, Fetterman, Kamala. Fetterman, um, Klobuchar, or uh, let's say Tim Ryan. Uh, if no, he wins, no, no I say uh, I, it's, it's, it's Kamala. Kamala. Kamala is the okay. you can't Kamala. you got you, you can't you can't win the Democratic nomination without without uh, the majority of black voters and and black voters are are the first. The first black f- uh, female vice president, or she's going to walk in the door with a lot of loyalty from them. Is it possible she could lose that voting block? It's possible, but it'll be it'll yeah. take a lot. It'll take a lot to to dislodge them from her in the way that it w- took a lot to try to dislodge black voters from Joe Biden. I would say that's not again not guaranteed, but she's got to be sure. the front runner sitting there with Biden's yeah, endorsement as vice president with that kind of connection. I'm not sure he'd endorse her, but yeah, I, I probably, I guess. All right, guys. Uh, that is basically, that was, that was, uh, Tim, do you have anything you want to say to make, are there any, do you have any bones to pick with Lebo about his book? Bones to you pick? You think he got the Reince Priebus story wrong? Oh, it's not a bone. I think that I, I no. I think that it's a bone to pick with Reince. I think that Reince is a liar, <laughs> and so like I just it's funny. Like our book does overlap in in a couple of cases with Spicer and Lindsay and mm-hmm. Reince, and and there is a conflict in the story of how Reince got fired and how humiliating it was, and. I think that my version was slightly more humiliating for Reince, which is possible that it was wish casting or possible that he lied to Lebo or I don't know. He, uh, yeah. Reince is not exactly known for his candor. He uh, look, bottom line, 
he, he was fired by tweet left on the tarmac <laughs> it was raining these are the essentials um i think his own the other key that I, I added one other key fact which was he had been on the phone with trump planning a golf date oh and trump trump had not mentioned didn't to him, mention to him. that's to, true not mentioned to him that the tweet was coming that's another true. key fact absolutely absolutely yeah wasn't there something i, I actually i think tim said i was too nice to christy I, I don't know maybe not too I nice whatever too, i didn't i did think he was too I, nice. you, were way too, you were way too nice to christy Way too nice. Way too nice. Way too nice to Chris. Next book. Next Mark was like, Mark was. He's like, I gotta have some targets for uh, for uh, for this town three. I got <laughs> that. That will still. Yeah, that will still. Sure. That will still talk to me. Yeah, yeah that's probably right. Um, you guys have been an utter delight, and um, and these Thanks, two John. books. These two books. Thank you for your servitude by Mark Leibovich and Why We Did It by Tim Miller. There have been a lot of books about Donald Trump written in the Trump presidency, but you guys decided to do something different, which was to really kind of focus on, you know, the accomplices, the enablers and the and the culture that allowed this to to take hold, which answers, I think, a fundamental question for a lot of people, which is I think we could have a longer historical discussion about the degree to which the, the GOP was already ideologically bankrupt and corrupt when Donald Trump came along. But sure. it's certainly the case that this question, and I raise mine, how do we go from Mitt Romney as the nominee of the party to Donald Trump as the president, the next nominee and president of the United States? It's like one of the great historic, it's one of the great questions that we all have to grapple with. You guys both provide an enormous amount of insight from your differing perspectives on it. So America, thanks uh, you. Thanks, John. Appreciate for it, on. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys soon. Appreciate it, Alman. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Mark Leibovich and Tim Miller for being with us. Remember to pick up Mark's new book, Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission, and also pick up Tim's new book, Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican Road to Hell. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Megan Burney is our producer. Fondam Wong is our researcher and assistant producer and the one and only Marshall Eisen is our executive producer. 